Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. You are listening to Gary Howard, Europe Editor at Sea Trade Maritime News, and today I'm in conversation with Sandy Ennell, CEO of Transparency Fuels and President of the Connecticut Maritime Association. Sandy and I talk about the current state of the bunker industry, its role in decarbonisation, and the particular challenges facing the North American market. We also have a little look ahead at CMA Shipping 2023, which is taking place in Connecticut from March 21 to 23, 2023. As ever, I started by asking Sandy to introduce herself. Yeah, hi Gary, thanks for having me today. My name is Sandy Enner. I'm the CEO and founder of Transparency Fuels, a US-based bunker fuel company based in Connecticut. I've been in bunkers and in Connecticut since 2007, which lends me to my role as the current president of the Connecticut Maritime Association, an organization based here in Connecticut in the US, with anywhere from 800 to 1,000 members at any given time. And we're gearing up, as you know, for our annual trade show that we host in Stanford every year. So we're looking forward to that. Yes, and I'll be out there in Connecticut in a couple of weeks' time. Great. We're going to touch on both CMA and the bunkering, but we'll start on bunkering. Bunkering is going to be central to any decarbonisation efforts within the maritime industry, but transparency along the entire fuel supply chain is going to be essential in the future. Are there areas that the bunkering sector needs to improve on in its practices and fuel procurement more broadly? For sure. As we move into all these new fuels, everything is going to be new. Price, origin, blending components. So how do we start to transition the industry now to clean up not only the sulfur and the carbon, but also to clean up the practices? I think that transparency has always been important. We're just not accustomed to receiving it. You know, I think there's not a lot of trust in the bunker industry in general. People always think that somebody else is out to get them or take advantage of them. And it's unfortunate. So I think that there's really a lot of outdated practices that need to change. And I think the current commercial environment as companies are investing money into new types of engines and exploring you know, projects and identifying new fuels, like the opaqueness that currently exists in much of the bunker industry is going to have to be removed. Fuel suppliers are currently in a position now where they can push back on any counterparties or entities that maybe are not representing their supply models or their operations accurately, which I think is a, is a unique opportunity. You're not going to be able to just have a junior broker with no education come in and just pop in and start trading or broking fuel. There's going to have to be some education on new fuels, best practices as we move forward. So I think that the themes of collaboration and cleaning up sort of the practices that have been allowed to exist across this bunkering landscape when it comes to quality, pricing, terms, we're sort of in a position where I think all of these things can change. And these themes seem near universal across the maritime industry, wherever you know, wherever our interviewee is from. There's a sort of global challenge for decarbonisation, but then each market has its own unique challenges. When it comes to creating a level playing field for decarbonisation, what incentives do you think should be put in place and who should be targeted by those incentives? So incentives are interesting because they're fragmented depending upon where you are in the globe, right? Like look at in Europe, there's a lot of incentives for biofuels in the Netherlands, making Rotterdam a pretty big hub for biofuel bunkerings. However, in the US, 
it's very interesting to see that the government here has passed a lot of legislation that's supposed to be pro-investment in cleaning up emissions and allowing these companies to invest in developing some of these fuels. But none of those tax incentives trickle down to maritime, which I think is interesting. Some people feel like the U.S. government is actually trying to blackball maritime, the maritime industry in the sense of the tax incentives are available for land-based, so trucks and rails. But right now, there's not a lot of support for development in maritime. And I'm hoping that that will change in the coming months as the global pressure as we move into 2030 and 2050 will start to encourage people in the U.S. to invest more money. I think the other piece of the puzzle is, is, and you see this in articles every day, shipping companies are still under tight earnings pressure. So when you start looking at increasing your operating cost by investing in some of these newer fuels or exploring them, it doesn't make sense from a company from a bottom line. So I think if there's things that can be done on a global perspective, either it's tax incentives or you're doing some sort of consideration for the less wealthy countries, because if you have the US and Europe investing a lot of money and providing tax incentives, but then you have the poorer parts of the world where that does not exist, those countries are going to be left behind, which is a pretty big global conversation on the IMO scale or the IMO level where they're really pushing to try to figure out how you can equalize it. The answer doesn't exist yet. Yeah, I think it's a focus of the ICS's proposal for the levy and um, something fund. <laughs> it's exactly. this idea of, yeah. uh, of making sure that some of that money does find its way to developing nations so they can get their own fuel production and fuel infrastructure in place for bunkering and whatever else. Absolutely. Turning to LNG, there's quite a few dual fuel ships around now and even more in the order book. What should ship owners and operators be looking for if they don't have a contract in place with one of those sort of big energy firms? Absolutely. So it's interesting because LNG development originally was done on a contract basis between the big players, which makes sense. You're not going to invest money in developing infrastructure if you don't have a dedicated client on the backside. And a lot of those companies locked in their their LNG pricing at around 12 per MMBTU, which, you know, when we look at the pricing, which happened after Russia invaded Ukraine, it was closer to $65. So now we're kind of back down into the, the sweet spot of $15 around there fluctuating. But what I think is really interesting about all of the dual fuel ships that are coming onto the market is we have customers who operate on a spot basis. They are not liners and they're going to be taking on charter ships that are dual fuel. And at present, unless you were in, you know, the development of some of these initial projects, you don't have a bunkering checklist for okay, my ship's going to be here. What are the questions that I need to ask? What are the steps? And depending upon where you are in the world, this is going to be quite different. So I would say number one is to, if you are going to be somebody that's going to be taking in a ship, operating its spot on the LNG market, I think pricing is one of the big components. Uh, LNG fuel is There's the fuel component of it, and then there's the transportation component of it. And depending upon where you are in the world, there's going to be a different gas benchmark. So like the TTF in Europe, the Henry Hub in the US, and Platts LNG in Japan and Korea. So those are sort of like your your markers that you should start to be tracking. And then I think when you look at energy, you have to start talking about energy content of the product. And then from an operational standpoint, In the U.S., back when LNG first became a fuel, the United States Coast Guard mandated that 
every ship that was going to do sort of an on the water STS transfer of LNG had to go through this lengthy process of has ID or has op, which is like basically their risk assessment, and it has to get stamped off by the US Coast Guard. I think it is a very lengthy process. So I think one of the most important things is, is to figure out, all right, are there ways for us as we develop these fuels and these more spot and, you know, sort of quote unquote liquid markets, can we drive out some of those sort of requirements that make it easier and facilitate people entering and purchasing these fuels and bunkering? So I think in short, (laughs) I think there's a pricing component. There's definitely an operations component. And I think that the other thing is that uh, start figuring out which indices, you know, you can track to sort of figure out, you know, maybe if you are going to take some of these ships on charter where, you know, you might not have been a company that would have entered into a contract for like high sulfur fuel oil, it might be something that you look at locking in rates with an LNG supplier just so you have your pricing and your your shipping economics make sense to you. Sure. And just thinking on taking methanol as an example, we're starting to see these agreements being made again between the large liner companies and methanol producers. Do you expect that to take a similar sort of process that the LNG has? Absolutely. And I think what the lag in that is potentially just the availability of methanol right now, that's going to take a little bit longer to develop. Um, I love the investment in the space. I think it's really exciting to see, but it is just all of these new fuels, even with biofuels, your procurement process is going to have to change um, and you're just going to have to have a different checklist no matter what the fuel is. Yeah, I think the initial problem we're going to see is that when methanol is on the market, the problem is going to be that Maersk has it all. So we're going to have to, <laughs> to wait until they've had their fill. <laughs> what are the benefits of a intermarket collaboration in the in the bunker space? So I think collaboration in all businesses brings forward concepts and things that wouldn't have existed if everybody remained in their silo. You know, the more I think that we learn and share our findings and debunk either myths or headlines. We tend to be very press release driven these days. The faster the industry as a whole will move towards net zero. I think that improving collaboration also helps you improve the professionalism of the sector. We can elevate the role of marine fuel suppliers. It's more focused as, you know, not just a fuel, it's more of a commodity and it it ultimately enables ship owners and operators to contribute to decarbonization. But I also think it helps people make the best decisions for what direction their company is going to take. I think collaboration is also important from the sense of how much more technically proficient, not only the folks on the ship, the, you know, the crews are going to have to be, but your procurement team is going to need to be. And I think it moves bunkering or fuel procurement or energy procurement um, from the level of, you know, where it's essentially your operators are buying the fuel that could stay the same, but there's going to have to be some sort of an elevated position within companies. And I think the only way you start to figure out what that looks like is by talking to your engine manufacturers, talking to your fuel suppliers, talking to, you know, the DMVs out there, and just trying to put together accurate information that's not necessarily a myth or somebody trying to get, you know, investor financing or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, it can prove difficult, especially it's a pet peeve of mine is seeing bickering between the alternative fuels. Well, they're representatives, obviously, again, a a battle of press releases going backwards and forth. Um, I was speaking to 
LP Petraki last week in London, and she's going to be speaking at CMA, I think, on a couple mm-hmm. of panels. She is. Um, and she was speaking about the difficulty, especially in European short sea shipping, but I won't ask you specifically about that. But the trouble of renewing the fleet in that area, because there's not necessarily the infrastructure in place to support new fuels. How does this collaboration play into planning for future engine investments and return on investment and that sort of thing? I love this question because I think people think there's like one answer, you know, because we live in this like TikTok fast, fast paced world. But what I think you're going to see is a circular three step process, basically, where in in part number one, which is what we are right now, um, we understand the regulations we're evaluating alternatives and we're identifying the barriers to overcome. And then you move into the second phase of that where you're exploring what supply options actually exist, the infrastructure, who are the suppliers, what are the purchasing terms. Um, And then each shipping company is going to have to decide which ones they want to implement or bring on board. And then I think you move into sort of step three, which is short and long-term fuel strategies, which are going to have to exist concurrently. I think what, what, a lot of people think is, is like, okay, we're going to decide on this today in 2023, and then it's going to last us till 2050. But I think what's going to really happen is you're going to have an interim approach, which is what I think a lot of the scrubber models fill in an interim in a biofuel, like a drop in fuel. So you're investing in those infrastructures while you're then watching what's developing on the supply side. And I think it's going to change several times. So I think what companies are investing in right now is not necessarily what they're going to be investing in come 2031. Because the more we collaborate and talk, I think the faster these new technologies are going to develop. Absolutely. And then speaking about the modern day, but also looking ahead at those changes, how does having a bunkering partner like Transparency sort of bring value to customers in that market? So I think it's all in the name, Transparency. Um, we are proud to be exactly that, uh, be clear responsive, ethical, professional. And I have a team um, of really knowledgeable, experienced brokers and support staff that are totally committed to making sure that the needs and you know priorities of our owners, along with the needs and priorities of our suppliers are matched up, um, that there's no hidden agendas, that everything is very clear. I think Marine fuel purchasing is not just about price. Uh, it's never just about price. Uh, operations hiccups or spec problems can cost companies a lot of money. So where you might have been able to save per metric ton pricing, you're going to lose it in the end if you're just going with the cheapest. So I think what our team is focused on is being a team player. What I think ship owners need is to have somebody that's maybe outside of the day-to-day operations of the ships that are watching the market and are paying attention to what's coming up and who the players are. And because we're totally independent, we're not swayed one way or the other. And our focus right now is to develop We have a program called TC Green, which is our alternative fuel support program. And we're doing consultancy projects for for companies, which I think that how we develop what we were talking about before, about developing those bunkering checklists. What are the processes? We are looking to be the experts in that and also do our part in making the whole process transparent and cleaning up uh, sort of the opaqueness in this bunker market through that program and through our clear and ethical approach to procurement. And then just switching hats for the final question, we have CMA shipping coming up very soon, and you are president of the Connecticut Maritime Association. Could you tell us a little about the show from your point of view, your experience of it in the past, and if you have any sort of 
particular favorite events or sessions coming up this year? Absolutely. So I've been in the CMA since I moved to Connecticut in 2007. As a, you know, I had been a Navy helicopter pilot and then uh, got out of that and logically went into marine fuel brokerage. Uh, So uh, the CMA has always been near and dear to my heart because it's an organization that really tries to bring people together across the maritime landscape in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, but also globally. Um, And I love this year's theme of collaboration for transition. I'm really looking forward to celebrating our Commodores, Cesare and Paolo D'Amico, who I think because they border tankers and dry bulk and their commitment to decarbonization, coupled with their uh, support of the Connecticut Maritime Association through their Stanford team, I think that they really personify collaboration. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, a great choice. And I think the first time that it's been a sort of double award for the the Commodore hat, right? It has been, but that's about collaboration, right? So um, I and I liked the international plus the foreign and I'm just really excited about having them here. I think that the other thing that I'm really excited about on the on the agendas are all of the sessions that are about educating our seafarers and how we're attracting new young talent into to develop this next generation of maritime. Uh, there's three student winners of the business of shipping research competition, and they're going to present their winning essays intermixed. So I always think it's really cool to hear what the young folks are out there thinking. Yeah, that's great. Because the CMA that I put together and then couldn't attend, I think we were, we'd moved the time of the year that it happened. So we couldn't have that essay competition, right? So it's great to see that back in the program and that you guys are back on top of it. No, I know there's one about mobile harbors, which I think is a super interesting concept. So I can't wait to hear about those. You know, obviously, there's going to be a focus on decarbonization, but it's not, there are definitely alternative fuels segments of it. But I think the other pieces are about safety. Um, when it comes to the safety concerns, how do we reduce the carbon footprint while keeping everybody on the water safe? Um, and also, I just, anything about offshore wind, I'm totally into. So I know we have some sessions on that. But Inform has done a really nice job putting together a great program. And I hope everybody, if you haven't bought your ticket, you're out there in force and we look forward to seeing you. Excellent. Sandy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. 